You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead better. As the podcast has grown, the great coaches we have interviewed have shared so much insight and wisdom that we decided to create episodes dedicated entirely to the ideas that have resonated with us the most. Today's episode is on the topic of underdogs, and Grant and I are joined for the discussion by Sean Murray, who has just written a fantastic book called If Gold Is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory. If you would like to join us for a future episode to discuss a coaching or leadership topic that is close to your heart, then please contact us using the details in the show notes. And now, please enjoy our discussion with Sean Murray. The Lessons from the Great Coaches Podcast. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Great Coaches Podcast. My name is Grant Liversage, and together with Paul Barnett, we're going to be talking to Sean Murray about a team that was the underdogs and how they prevailed, and draw some lessons from the story around leading teams in the sport and uh, corporate environment. So I'd like to introduce, uh, I'd like to ask Sean to introduce himself. Over to you, Sean. Great. Thank you, Grant. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm excited to talk about a team that I spent a lot of time researching and learning about and writing a book. 
It's uh, the 1984 U.S. men's Olympic volleyball team. And uh, I, I recently published a book called If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together uh, for Olympic Glory. And it was a fascinating process to, to study a team that really was a true underdog uh, that two years before the Olympics finished 13th in, in their sporting world championship and then somehow won a gold medal. And I'm happy excited to kind of go into that but just to give a little background about who I am and what I do in addition to you know writing this book I help organizations and teams uh, reach their full potential uh, helping them build better teams build better cultures and, uh, and and leaders kind of get the most out of their teams and organizations and I I'm based here in the United States in Seattle Washington and work with uh, mostly mid to large size companies and executive teams doing just that. And I wanted to write a book that where I studied a team, how a team became the best in the world at what they did. And uh, I happened to have a personal connection to this team, this underdog team we're going to talk about. My father was the, well, he took on the role of, they called the team psychologist. He wasn't really a sports psychologist. He was there to try to help the team become a better team, which is a really fascinating uh, you know, process, you know, what do you do to bring a group of individuals together to do something that they couldn't do collectively? They, uh, they couldn't do on their own that they could only do collectively. And, and so my father was a part of that team as a team psychologist. And I got to know the coach of that team, Doug Beal. And, uh, when I went, when I thought about writing a, a book about a team, that was the first team I thought of. And I called up my friend, Doug Beal, who was the coach of the gold medal winning 84 team, uh, U.S. men's volleyball team. And I said, Doug, I'm thinking about writing a book about that team. It was a special team. And he said, I, I think you're right. It was a special team and I'd, I'd love to help you. And and it was his help and guidance, um, you know, connecting me with the players and others that got, got the project started. So that's a little bit about me. You mentioned that what you do is help leaders primarily in the corporate world. And yet you're writing a book about sports. And what's the linkage between the story of underdogs and this team and the leadership and lessons from sport? Yeah. Well, you know, people learn, I believe, through stories. You know, I think stories are very important. I mean, you guys get this and how you do podcasts and and just it's a very human way to learn and relate to others. And, and I found that people love sports stories. And there's really some great analogies between especially teams in sports and teams in business, right? I mean, we, we can watch a, a, a soccer or, you know, football team, the World Cup is going on, you know, probably as we speak right now. And, you know, you watch a team come together and you can learn from that and apply that to other parts of, of your world. And and people just generally gravitate towards these stories, uh, especially around Olympic stories, you know, connections, the emotional and uh, connections that you don't normally get if you're just talking about maybe other business teams. And so I find that they these stories resonate and uh you know and so i thought let's let's use a sports story i 
I actually read a book called Boys in the Boat, which is, is I don't know if you guys are familiar with that with that story, but it's a, it's another story about an American um, Olympic team. It happened to be a crew team that won a gold medal in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin, which was the Nazi Olympics, and they beat the Nazi boat. You, you know, I mean, it's just an incredible story, another underdog story. I happened to read that book, and I thought, you know, there's so many great lessons in this team that I could use to, to teach people in business. And, and, and I find when I talk to, to business executives, they often use sports metaphors, right? So anyway, it was a natural fit and I, people can make the leap. And so that's why I decided to write a book about a sports team, even though I'm trying to teach people in business. So tell us the story of the team. Well, the team is, you know, to, to understand this team, this is the 1984 Olympics. It was in Los Angeles. Uh, a f- four years before that was probably the biggest underdog story of all time in the United States, w- which was the 1980 men's Olympic hockey team. And that that's a story that almost everyone universally knows here in the United States. I don't know how, how well known it is globally, but it's because they be, they beat the Soviet Union, which was absolutely dominant in in hockey. This this story that I wrote was about volleyball, and volleyball is not as popular as hockey, and the story is not as well known. But I think it has every bit the the same amount of emotion and and interest, and it's a very similar story in coming from so low to so high, right? From so be such an underdog to becoming the best in the world. And they did have to beat the Soviet Union. I'll have to kind of explain that because this, the Soviet Union was not, at, the Eastern Bloc countries were not at the 1984 Olympics. If you remember, they were boycotting that Olympics. But um, th- so I, I will talk a little bit about that. But they, so so that's, th- to understand the backdrop of this team, in the 1970s, even though volleyball was invented in the United States, the, the national team was, severely underperforming what would happen was it was we the united states had a lot of talented players because the size of the country the fact that volleyball was invented here it's not that there weren't a lot of great players california was a hotbed of volleyball it still is today you know imagine the beaches of southern california kids growing up playing volleyball they had players but what the what the USA volleyball at the time did was they would bring together these sort of all-star players uh, a few months before the the European tournaments in May or June. And they'd pick a team of 12 or 14 all-star players. They'd have a few practices together. They'd throw a coach at this team and they'd go off to Europe and they would just, uh, you know, they would get beat bad and they they had no success doing this even though they had talented players and of course looking back on it now you can sort of see that it's hard to get a team together quickly especially with big egos you know highly talented players they weren't gelling they weren't a cohesive unit they weren't on the same page all those things but that was the way that that the u.s did at the time thinking well we've got these great stars let's just get them out there and they're gonna you know they're gonna do what they do and they're gonna win they didn't win. Uh, one of the players in the 1970s was a, a gentleman named Doug Beale. And and he, uh, my, my father was actually working as a, as a team psychologist w- with the team in the 70s. And this player, Doug Beale, thought, you know, this, my father's name was Don Murray. And he said, you know, this Don Murray guy that's preaching this team building 
I think it, we need to do more of that if we want to become a better team. And we're going off, we're playing teams from Poland, from Bulgaria, from Italy, from the Soviet Union that were playing year round, that were that really were had a team environment. And so when that that young player, Doug Beal, was just tired of being humiliated, he he became the next coach. And he thought, you know, if we do this, let's do it right. Let's get a team together in a training center, spend more than a few weeks learning, and let's do some of these practices about learning about each other, building trust, creating feedback processes for the players to give feedback to the coaches, the coaches to give feedback to the players, uh, to, you know, they, they, they build our communication um, on and off the court. So these are some of the things they started to do to become a team. Even they had, they had talent, like let's get better at becoming a team. And, and so that's where they, the, the United States was in the early 1980s, knowing that um, they were going to host the Olympics in 84, they'd have an automatic bid. They hadn't been to the Olympics since 1968. And um, they thought, well, you know, at least we're going to be in the Olympics first time in, in 16 years or something like that. And so, you know, that that's kind of the state of the affairs. They had a, a player that was that believed in team. Um, I mean, they had a, a coach who was a former player who believed in this whole team aspect. And 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 that's that's where they were about 1981 or 82. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And so, Sean, you you paint the the picture of they had the opportunity, but it was a long shot. So, what happened then? Yeah, it definitely was a long shot. Most people in the volleyball world didn't give this team much of a chance to medal at this Olympics. You know, in 1982, two years before the Olympics, the team went to Argentina for the World Cup, and they finished 13th. Uh, they had a couple matches where they were close to winning and then they blew it. You know, things would, which often happens in volleyball or in sports, you know, the momentum shifts. How do you react? How do you deal when things aren't going your way on a team or in sports? That's the difference between great teams and championship teams. They, they're able to overcome that. They have the confidence, they have the trust, they have um, the the resilience to um, overcome these these swings and momentum, and so this team did not have that. You know, they went down to Argentina. They they got third. They finished thirteenth. Uh, the Soviet Union at the time was the the they had won the gold medal in uh, nineteen eighty, and they'd won the world championships. Let's say in seventy eight, eighty, and eighty two. So this was the Soviet Union was the most dominant team in the world at the time, and they won the world championships. 
And uh, it was sort of as dominant as Soviet hockey was in 1980. It's a Soviet volleyball team. And, and so here's the U.S., you know, 13th, not even in the same league. And the coaches thought, you know, something's got to change. You know, what are we going to do? We, and it, they threw around some ideas. And one idea they came up with was, you know, what this team needs is a shared significant life experience. You know, something that they do together outside of volleyball to bring them together. So they get to know each other. Uh, there were a lot of personalities, strong personalities on this team. There were, there was a bit of a divide between the East players from the Eastern part of the United States and the Western part of the United States. They called them the Easties and the Westies. Uh, there were, there's a bit of a tribal fault lines between the different colleges where the, the these young men went, you know, between UCLA and USC and Pepperdine, these big colleges in Southern California. So, it wasn't a team that had real strong friendships across the board. There were a few pockets of strong friendships. So for all these reasons and, and this whole idea of resilience, they thought, let's do something outside of volleyball. Uh, the first idea was to send them to boot camp. Uh, you know, Grant, it was, uh, let's, let's send these, this, send these young men to uh, the get them become Marines. You know, we'll just, they, we'll 10 weeks of Marine training or something or two weeks or whatever they could do. And they called up uh, the Marine base, which was close by. This team was based in San Diego. And, the, you know, the U.S. Marine Corps said, no, we're not going to put your volleyball team through our training. So they thought, OK, well, let's and they came up with um, or they came across this organization called Outward Bound, which actually started in uh, the U.K. And Outward Bound is an organization that takes people through an experiential learning process, usually at the time it was one, two, three, four weeks with fairly long where you go out into the wilderness and you learn skills. And as you are out there learning, surviving in some way, you're learning life skills around how to survive, how to build resilience, how to care for other people, not just yourself, but others on your team. So it's groups of people that they take these, these, these uh, um, trips on and, that was the the idea. The coaches said, well, let's, they approached Outward Bound and Outward Bound said that they would design a course for this team. And they thought it would be great if this course was in the winter because these players were mostly from Southern California. So they were more comfortable in the warm climates. You know, they grew up playing volleyball on the beach. They weren't as familiar with the mountains, with the snow. And so they designed a three-week course through the mountains of Utah uh, in the Canyonlands National Park in the United States in the middle of winter in January of 1983. And the players absolutely did not want to go on this, this uh, experiential learning process. You know, their feeling was you get better at volleyball on the volleyball court. You know, why would we take time out of practicing on the volleyball court to go try to get better at volleyball by snowshoeing around Utah with 70-pound packs and snowshoes and uh, it, so they were adamantly against it. And and Doug Beal, the coach, to his credit, said, no, we're going to do this. And his assistant coaches, and and they they ended up flying into Utah and uh, actually Colorado and then driving down into Utah and, and getting off a bus in January of 1983, strapping on snowshoes. And, and all of a sudden they were, you know, five miles in, up into a pass about – 
8,000 feet in elevation and um, complete silence. And these players were in another world all of a sudden. And, and they had to learn how to survive out there in the wilderness. And that experience was the beginning, in my opinion, of building towards becoming the best team in the world, not just the best team in 84, but a dominant team for about six years. And it started right there. That's a fantastic story, this whole notion of building resilience through shared experience. And I wonder, Paul, are there examples in your interviews with the great coaches on underdogs and overcoming odds in the way that uh, Sean is talking about it? Oh, it's a great story, Sean. I mean, we interviewed Doug a couple of months back and he, he really picked up the story from the Olympics forward. So it's great to hear the context and the backstory to, to the team that he led to that gold medal. But Grant, I do have uh, an example of coaches talking about underdogs. And the first one comes from Sean Deitch. Now, up until early 2022, when he was sacked, Sean was actually the longest serving coach in the English Premier League. And he coached a team called Burnley. And I asked him specifically about how he was able to create such a competitive team at Burnley, given that they had much less resources than their their rivals, their competitors. And, and I'll insert here what Sean said about underdogs or or as he referred to them at the time, positive realities. And here's that quote now from Sean. We sort of worked on the idea of reality, really. You know, positive realities, as I call it. So I never BS the team. I wouldn't stand in front of them when you're playing Man City and go, these are crap, lads. I'd say, look, we know these are proper players. These are proper, proper players. But if we can make the game about us, if we can make it uncomfortable, if we can make it feel like it's not their kind of formatted game, then that just knocks them out of kilter. And if we knock them out of kilter, do a few get a bit disgruntled? Do they make, you know, it feels different. It feels awkward. And we tried to use that kind of feeling amongst a group. And then it was like, build that mentality. And what about that one that is the one? What about that game when you do beat them? What about that feeling? Well, you know, how about that? How, how good does that feel? So we kind of, I mean, the be- one of the best accolades I've ever been given, I remember Pep Guardioli was waxing lyrical about all the teams who went to Man City and they played good football and he won 5 nil obviously, every time, which he did eventually against us. But the first few seasons, he used to say, going to Burnley is like, like going to the dentist. And I was loving it. I said, I said, I'm absolutely loving that. It was like the biggest compliment I think I've probably ever been given, you know what I mean, by someone of his prowess. Um, but I actually met him a few times. We have a laugh about some of the stuff, you know. Um, but... You get what I mean? That was a that was a compliment because he's going. He was basically going. It's hard. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. You know, and and when you build that mentality, it becomes a bit of a badge of honour. You're listening to the lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Hi everyone, and we are sorry to interrupt this episode, but if you are enjoying it and would like to listen to the rest, then you can purchase it on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Included in the purchase is the transcript and the videos of the coaches whose audio we have used. While you are on our site, you can also check out our Insights database, where we have snipped out insights from the videos of our interviews on leadership topics like communication, coaching, philosophy, and conflict. You can search through it by keyword, sport, or coach, download, and share them. It's a great way of bringing in a new voice to deliver your message as a leader. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you find the material on our website helpful and inspiring.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.